welcome to AV Plus, the podcast from Commercial Integrator. I'm Adam Forziati, web editor here at CI. Look, you know, we know it's been a hot summer this year, and if you don't like working outdoors or even just crossing the sidewalk to enter the air-conditioned building that you're going to be working inside of, we have bad news for you because outdoor installations are definitely growing in popularity in Pro-AV. But if you're starting to expand more into the outdoors side of your digital signage business and you can beat the heat in the summer, you're in luck because I recently spoke with a couple of people who have some really good advice. Today on AV Plus, we'll hear from Jonathan Braun, a true digital signage living legend, about trends in outdoor displays. We'll also hear from our very own Bob Archer, who probably has the most experience in audio that I know of. But first, let's jump to a recap of Pro AV News from July with editors Tom and Craig. May, we published an article that uh, basically found that AV acquisitions are already beginning to outpace uh, the rate of acquisitions from last year and I think two years ago as well, which is really saying something. Uh, And that news, that sort of whole category of acquisitions news has not been, you know, a stranger to the AV world in in recent years. But... uh, New and noteworthy this month is that ABISBL, the industry's largest AV firm that we know of anyway, uh, has made another <laughs> acquisition. Tom, you spoke with the CEO uh, of ABISBL. Can you uh, tell us about why that, why this move for them is important and what it says about the industry today? Yeah, so I, I did. I talked to John Zettel, CEO of, um, of ABISBL, and I also talked to uh, Bruce Blair, of the company that they acquired, uh, Digital Video Networks. And so it, it was an interesting conversation because what I really wanted to get at was, you know, what, what, are, some of the, um, what are some of the trends? What are some of the consistencies between what AVISBL is looking for in the companies that it acquires? Because I'm on the phone with John Zettel, it seems like once every few months talking about an acquisition and you'd think by now I would start to be able to recognize the patterns. And, you know, one of the things I asked him about was like whether or not, you know, what he's trying to do is just sort of, you know, like fill in the geographic gaps. You know, like if you look at the AVISBL map and, you know, you sort of evaluate, you know, where they have a presence and where they don't have a presence. Is he just trying to like make it look like um, a Verizon or AT&T like (laughs) cell phone map where there's like dots everywhere all across the country? And um, no, that's not what he's doing, but he is looking at markets that seem to be growing and seem to be in high demand and seem to be a stretch for the organization based on the way they're currently structured, right? So DVN is based in the Southwest and AVIS Bell has the ability to serve the Southwest with you know strategic locations, for instance, in California. However, um, with demand sort of escalating in certain markets in the Southwest, you know, they're starting to find that, you know, they could really benefit from having a more physical presence there. So, you know, it just sort of sort of happened that um, digital video networks was in a position where they, on the flip side, were trying to serve customers in the Southwest that were often telling them, we also have a location on the East Coast, or we also have a location here or there. And if you're not able to serve our complete uh, AV needs across our entire sprawling organization, you're maybe only going to get a portion of our business. 
So they were running into sort of that super integrator um, dilemma that we've written about in the past where certain companies are more uh, able to compete in the current market because of how sprawling their customers are. So I think what happened with AVISBL and DVN is they, they met each other's needs in a really um, neat way. I'm noticing now that uh, in that story that I mentioned that we published in, in May, uh, we had figures then that were saying 3.2 acquisitions per month projected based on what had already happened by that point in time. We've published at least, I, I want to say, three or four, not including AVISBL, three or four more uh, stories having to do with acquisitions, you know, much smaller deals than the latest one, but still. Um, I'd like to get both of your opinions, uh, Craig is joining us too, on what you think that will mean for 2020. I mean, 2020 is sort of like a long way off and nobody's really wanting to think that far ahead right now, but um, do you see this pattern continuing or is there any um, markers, for instance, in, uh, from the state of the industry research we did this year or anything else that might lead you to believe that acquisitions will either continue to accelerate or maybe decelerate a little bit. So er earlier in the year, um, I heard from a couple of economic experts and, you know, they kind of were a little bit split in terms of, you know, what the economy was going to do and, and when the next recession might be and things like that. Um, you know, one basically said it would be maybe a short, re short recession, maybe towards the end of 2020. One said, you know, maybe there, there wouldn't be anything, that, that sort of thing. Um, so maybe the pace will slow down by the end of next year, but it, it doesn't feel like it's slowing down. It feels like it's as active as ever. And maybe people are just trying to beat the rush and, you know, kind of be prepared for the next recession when it does happen, because it seems like the last one snuck up on, on a lot of people and, um, you know, kind of hurt, hurt their businesses. So maybe, you know, the part of the reason that these acquisitions are happening as, as quickly as they are and as frequently as they are is they're just trying to be better prepared than they were, you know, whatever it was, 2007, 2008. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting thing to note. Like, if your strategy going into a potential recession or just a potential, like, lull point in the market is to cover as many markets as you can and serve as many people as you can, as best as you can. Uh, I mean, pretty basic business tenement for sure. But if your goal is to expand to be able to do that in the coming year, it sort of acts as like a marker for which areas of technology are either going to continue to be very prevalent or which might be on the decline, right? If, if people like integrators or, or people in integration firms are working hard to identify what those markets are for them and identify what their customers are wanting more and more of, uh, that would be like a thermometer, if you will, or a, a gauge, if you will, for uh, what technology might still be here in a couple of years or five years or 10 years. And and I do think there's another driver might be the, the fact that um, the customers themselves are becoming more global and you know, kind of needing more help in more different places. Um, that's that's actually something Spinatar mentioned to me that you know they had no intentions to become a global company and they like if, if they didn't do that then they, they were going to lose a lot of customers because their customers were going global. So so they, they had no choice but to you know have some sort of operation that 
you know, have them go go global and you know be able to to reach the needs of, of all their customers. So, I, I think that's that's also part of you know why these acquisitions are happening. It, I mean, not not just in the United States, but around the world too. So getting back to uh, ABI SBL's recent acquisition for a second, though, before we forget, I wanted to talk to you, Tom, about an interesting conversation you had about how that deal actually went down. Okay. Well, let me ask you guys a question. When you're on a flight, do you talk to the person who's sitting next to you? I, I do occasionally. You do? It depends on like the vibe I'm getting from that person. Anything good ever come out of any of those conversations? Oh, yeah. Really? I had an almost existential experience on, on route to ISE this year with a very nice guy. <laughs> what about you, Craig? Um, I, I generally have headphones on before I get on the flight, and I'm usually, <laughs> usually asleep before the, uh, the flight attendants are making their announcements. Much so stars. I, yeah. Very surprised. Yes. Yeah, so, so I, don't, I don't have a lot of conversations when I'm flying. <laughs> I, I never knew that about you. I envy you. If I could sleep on a plane, that would be, that would be awesome. It would make my life a lot easier. But So anyways, um, how ABISBL and DVN came together started on a plane, right? So Bill Blair, who is one of the co-founders of DVN, and um, his wife were on a flight to Las Vegas for Infocom 2018. And they sat next to a gentleman, uh, Nicholas Camarado from ABISBL, who's ABISBL's Director of Corporate Development. And they struck up a conversation, uh, obviously, you know, they're in the same industry. They started talking and, you know, uh, Nicholas uh, Camarado sort of, you know, remembered, you know, what, uh, you know, what what was going on with uh, their company and their market. And, um, and Nicholas's responsibility with ABISBL is in part to, you know, look for acquisition opportunities. So, um, as we've discussed, uh, it, came it became pretty clear to ABISBL eventually that the Southwest was a market in which ABISBL could benefit um, by beefing up their physical presence. And, you know, probably over a year after that flight, he remembered the conversation with Bill and his wife, and he reached out to them to just sort of talk about it, and that's how the acquisition came to be. I said, do you think the acquisition would have happened had you not had that seat on the flight? And Bill was like, no, probably not. It was just a <laughs> fluke. Fluke. He's joking, of course, because they made sense for each other from a business perspective, but sometimes you have to be in the right place at the right time. No, absolutely. I mean, what a, like, he's the head of business operations, right? So he's he, he's the perfect person to end up next to. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's director of corporate development, and his responsibility is, you know, recognizing opportunities and ways in which ABISBL can expand, and he recognized an opportunity in the folks that he was sitting next to. wonder how many opportunities I've missed by being asleep on a whole flight. So I wanted to talk to you because you are probably one of the best resources out there for, uh, for digital signage and uh, display integration businesses to have and and we're very thankful to have you so can you talk to us a little bit today about some of the challenges that uh the integrators face with, with outdoor signage and uh, maybe if you can run down some some current trends we'd appreciate it i don't think that there would be any one that would disagree with me when i stated that the hottest topic uh in uh in outdoor is direct view led 
uh, and and I, if people who went to Infocom, they saw you know seventy or eighty different vendors, and it's like this tsunami of being uh, of being inundated with all these incredible direct view LED uh, LED images. And so, I, I guess the first thing that that we need to discuss is you know what are the challenges? You know what are the pros and what are the cons and what are some of the challenges? Well, I'm not going to go into the the classic uh, of what I call the Alan Braun core dump on on uh, uh, direct view LED, but but I think we can mention a few things for our listeners that that I think will be important to them. Uh, first of all, you know if we talk about pros, obviously uh, no need to to belabor the point. It's brightness, it's color saturation, high contrast, plus they're seamless. Enough said. They are beautiful displays, and anybody that went to Infocom or anybody that's gone to some of these regional events and they take a look at direct view LED, especially some of the fine pitch stuff at the proper viewing distance, it's just freaking incredible, no doubt about it. And I'm a projector guy that has become a flat panel guy over the years, although I must confess I still love projection, but you can't deny the pros uh, of brightness, color, saturation, contrast, and seamless. But there are some cons, man. There, there's some downsides to this, right? Right. Uh, the, and, the, and it, the, although that brightness has to come at a price. Well, yes, uh, it, it, and we're going to get there. But, but let me tell you the first thing that a commercial integration um, um, company needs to do is they need to specify this. Well, uh, it, we've got a kind of a hiccup in the giddy up, as my friends down uh, down in Texas might say, um, and, and and it's got to do with resolution. We're typically involved with like 1080p and 4K, and yeah, I've seen the demos of 8K. Do we need it? Not yet, but it's on the horizon. So we typically deal with those kind of resolutions. Well, they don't port over directly to the pixel density of um, uh, of, of a size of panel. For example, you might have a 1080p or a 4K 55-inch or 65 or 82 or 90-inch uh, direct uh, LCD panel, but but you don't have an 80-inch 1080p and a 65-inch 4K that's correlating directly to outdoor uh, direct view LED. So that's that's an issue, is is understanding the resolution requirements. The second issue is, and this is a big one, I mean, it's a great big one, is pixel density of viewing distance. Uh, everybody who's listening to this is going to understand that the the, the the tighter pixel densities, the smaller pixel densities, when you get below below two millimeter, the prices go up exponentially. You get four millimeter, six millimeter, eight millimeter, ten millimeter, and the prices are very reasonable. But the problem is at what distance can you view those panels? And so people need to understand pixel density and viewing distance. And then of course last but not least from an integration point of view, we end up with mounting. There's no VESA mount like we've got on LCD. There's no VESA mount uh, on a typical direct view LED. So we've got basically resolution requirements to take into consideration. We've got pixel density and viewing distance, and we've got mounting. Now we come to your favorite topic, Adam, prices. <laughs> I wouldn't call it my favorite, but I know that it's definitely something we have to cover, isn't it? Well, I, I, I don't think there, if, if we didn't cover it, uh, people would be sending letters to the editor after we got done <laughs> with this uh, conversation saying, well, what about prices? Well, okay, prices relate to kind of the, the, the next issue, and that's quality. And I, I like to talk about quality of these things is all over the place. At the 30,000-foot level, using uh, an airplane metaphor, at the 30,000-foot altitude level, um, uh, you know, a, 
the prices correlate directly to the smaller pixel uh, pixel pitch or dot pitch of direct view LED. So as I said before, kind of the sweet spot in direct view LED is a, a two, two and a half millimeter uh, panel. And then when you get below that, prices go up exponentially. And when you are anywhere from two and a half to four millimeter or six millimeter, then prices moderate. But the price issue directly correlates to a, a real hot button for me, and that's the quality of the of the uh, of the direct view LED. Now you might have had 60, 70, 80. I don't know. Somebody said there were a hundred uh, people who were actually presenting direct view LED at Infocom. I, I don't know that that number is accurate, but I know there were over 50 people as there were um, as there were last year uh, or in 2018, I should say. So we got all these vendors, and so. And you've got all these pricing at prices, and you've got all of these people that you get these emails every day from companies you've never heard of out of China that says, "Oh boy, we're going to be the best price," and and all of this. Well, I'm going to give the the caveat emptor, right? The old buyer beware notice here. It all relates to a couple of things. It relates to quality. There's a huge difference in manufacturing tolerances between one manufacturer and another. And by the way. Even some of the big name companies that we're familiar with, they OEM their products out of China, Shenzhen, China specifically. And and I did some research. You'll like this one, Adam. I did some research uh, uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, and there were a thousand companies in China at that point that were claiming they were a direct view uh, LED provider. They were making displays. So if we separate the wheat from the chaff, uh, uh, I, I do some obviously research work that you're familiar with. There may be a hundred companies that I would call legitimate companies out of that 1,000. And 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 what's the difference? Well, it's manufacturing tolerances. Are they ISO 9000 certified? Do they have continuous uh, measurable improvement? Uh, or, or, or all of these sorts of things. But something a lot of people don't think about is the differences in the core LED themselves. And this is a big swinger relating back to Adam's favorite or least favorite topic, whichever it is, pricing. There are about six to eight different grades of core LED, the individual core LED component um, of providers, manufacturers. And there are five or six companies that manufacture these. But if somebody gets this outstandingly great price on a uh, on a direct view LED, you have to check the quality of the direct view LED core component. Is it a Cree? Is it a Nichia? And there are like five or six brands that stand out as high quality. But even in those brands, they have different levels of quality. So if you get this outstanding price, and somebody says, "Oh yeah, let's just uh, let's go ahead and take this low price bid." Uh, you might very well be getting an inferior core LED, and people either don't know to check that or they ignore it entirely because they're blinded by this extraordinarily low price. So so prices and quality really matter. But the, the last two points I'll, I'll make about this particular topic is that is that when you're looking to a vendor, and, and we published on Commercial Integrator, I think about eight or nine months ago, um, you know, how to take a look at a direct view LED vendor. And, and my admonition in that article was, you've got to have USA application engineering support based here in the United States. You've got to have USA-based service, and you have to have the availability of parts in the U United States. If you don't have that, no matter how fast the jet is, no matter how big the boat is, if you don't have it here, 
application engineering service and parts, then I would run, not walk away from that prospective vendor. Because in AV in general, as our listeners know, it's not if, but when you have a problem and how you take care of that problem will determine the success or failure of your relationship with that particular client. So, so that's really, you know, one of my big caveats. And I'll end this diatribe, if you will, uh, with, with something that I did some research on. And, and I must admit that, that I, I was just tangentially aware of this and it's called, it's FCC compliance. FCC compliance, um, it, it's an interesting thing in that you can, as a manufacturer, you can claim FCC compliance and put an FCC label on it without actually going through all the steps of FCC compliance uh, out of in, in China. Uh, or if it was manufactured in the United States, it's the same thing, or in Europe, it's the same thing. You've got to have FCC compliance. Ultimately, this, this relates back to the emissions of the direct view LED and does it cause interference in other uh, electrical component, uh, components, uh, EMI, if you will, uh, electromagnetic interference. So if you get a poorly made system and you put up this great big screen outside and then all of the uh, offices around there, their Wi-Fi is disrupted and all kinds of electric, electromagnetic uh, impulses are interrupting, um, you know, the, uh, wireless service in the area, that's a no-no. And a lot of these companies claim they have FCC compliance, but they don't. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. The hottest topic, direct view LED, but you got the pros, you got the cons, you got some quality issues, but you better have USA application engineering service and parts, and you better make sure that whatever vendor you select has true FCC compliance. Well, Alan, I know that you had mentioned before that you your heart is still yeah, a little bit torn. You still have a soft spot for projection, but we are not. Uh, we haven't exhausted this topic when it comes to uh, display options. I mean, LCD is next to that, right? So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about LCD and 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 where where that part of the industry is going right now? Yeah, that's actually a that's actually a, a cool topic. The the issue with LCD and and I started in the flat panel industry back at the turn of the century, low these many uh, these many uh, years ago. Uh, and all we had was plasma, right? Plasma came in the uh, actually was first introduced in the 1990s, but really came into fruition, uh, you know, at the turn of the century, and it lasted a little while. And then we have evolved into liquid crystal displays, and we've all seen uh, that uh, migrate from you know 720p resolution to 1080p resolution to a 4K resolution, and now 8K resolution. Uh, but but mostly the LCD has been um, you know either these little small displays in kiosks or things like that or indoor displays in boardrooms, conference rooms, and training rooms. And I think it's fair to say, no matter how much I love projectors, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the larger uh, indoor LCDs have taken the place of projection in classrooms and in in corporations. There are still some reasons that projectors uh, went out, but but LCD has been an indoor technology until probably the last couple of years, but it's really raised its profile in the last year or maybe two years uh, in their outdoor, and, and they've even have some semi-outdoor displays. An interesting statistic on, um, on uh, uh, LCD displays uh, outdoors is that 70%, check this one, Adam, 70% of QSR business comes via their outdoor drive-throughs. And if you take digital signages at writ large, uh, digital signage retail and the QSR business and food services in general, that whole genre, 
uh, those whole vertical market segments of digital signage, collectively, it ends up being like 45 to 50% of all of digital signage if you separate QSR uh, and retail, retail being you know, 25, 30%, QSR being 20% or so. So, I mean, it's approximately 50%, and 70% of QSR comes through uh, outdoors. So, imagine now the effect of these outdoor displays on uh, QSR drive-throughs, but, but it really doesn't stop there. Any of these outdoor um, venues, whether it could be a theme park, it could be uh, casinos, it could be uh, any number of, of outdoor applications, uh, if you don't need a direct view LED, great big sign and all of that, just imagine the ability to have um, these displays, and they come in a variety of sizes. Typically, uh, they come in smaller sizes, of course, but but they come in typically 43 to 55 inch. I think there are a couple of manufacturers that do 65 inch, but they're all they're all um, IP rated, ingress protected ratings, which is for moisture and dust, uh, and and they can have touch screens or not have touch screens. And they're environmentally sensitive, so they can take uh, extra higher temperatures and lower temperatures. Uh, and they're IP rated, and many of them have, um, you know, protective uh, enclosures. And, and if they don't have a, a protective enclosure themselves, then you can put them in an enclosure. So just again, step outside of your your um, your, your box of comfort, if you will, uh, in the in the commercial integration community, and say, wait a minute, where can I use an outdoor uh, LCD display, and all of a sudden it gets you out of that boardroom, conference room, training room niche that is continuing to to be more commoditized. This is just another opportunity where, frankly, the commercial integration community can shine. Alan, I, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate the conversation as always, Adam. You have a good rest of your summer. And uh, if anybody wants any more information on these topics, I'm sure that they know how to contact you, and uh, we can certainly get them some more information uh, from the team at Commercial Integrator. Okay, Bob, uh, you are probably the most knowledgeable person I know when it comes to audio. And I just, I wanted to come to you because there are many numbers that we're seeing in terms of our yearly research and, and what other uh, people are telling us that suggest that there are a lot more outdoor installation uh, types of, 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 of jobs available to integrators or, you know, involved involving integrators right now uh, than in previous years. And I mean, what a summer to uh, to have that be the case during with with this heat but when it comes to finding quality audio solutions for for these types of uh, these outdoor installations in general what are your thoughts on what integrators can do to keep an eye out for for better outdoor audio solutions about I, I think the first thing that that dealers any type of dealer ought to do is try to research the company as thoroughly as possible. You know, these days we have the benefit of this thing called the internet. There's plenty of information on the internet about companies. Talk to your peers, talk to fellow dealers and find out what they're using and why they're using the products. Find out their experiences with them. Sometimes, uh, and, and I'll say this to a lot of people, that talking to dealers, uh, in this case it would be dealer to dealer, so it would be a peer thing. Um, you get the real scoop on whether a product, a company is good or bad because they, they deal with these companies in a different way. No disrespect to what you and I do, Adam, as as media guys, 
but we see these companies in a different way or a different light than how the dealers would be seeing them. The dealers are on the street level and talking to your peers to investigate a particular brand, product, company, uh, whatever I think is probably the most thorough way. You start you start talking to three, four, five dealers and you can quickly, you know, get a kind of assessment of a company and whether it's it's a company worth partnering with because ultimately that's what it's all about, partnering with these vendor vendor companies. To your to your point, Bob, you were talking there about how we as media people see these companies a bit differently. But that's part of the reason why I wanted to come to you, actually, because, you know, you have a lot of experience putting uh, or installing, I should say, the, the, these pieces of technology uh, in your own home. And, and you have technical knowledge that not too many media people uh, have. So in terms of if you were to think about this in, in terms of like installing a project in your own home, and I know that our audience is mostly commercial uh, grade uh, installations, but I think sort of similar lessons can be drawn from either end of the the resi versus commercial spectrum. If you were to install or looking for a piece of audio equipment to install in your own home, what types of things when you go online and you do that kind of research that you talked about, what kind of things really jump out at you and, and, and say, oh, okay, this is, this is a, a solution I should really consider? The history of the company, if, if a company um, and since we're talking home and, and, and residential, uh, I'll, I'll point out a company um, like Bryston. Bryston makes high-performance amplifiers um, that I really like. I have them in my home, my own uh, audio system. Bryston's been around s- since the 60s. Um, in the pro world, they happen to have a presence, too. They're in many recording studios, famous people. Um, Prince, Brian May, uh, you know, a number of people have used their products in uh, recording studio environments. Um, I, I like the company because they make robust products. They, they, they carry a 20-year unequivocal warranty, meaning I could give you my amplifier and that whatever's left in terms of years on that amplifier, you get left over. So if there's 10 years left on that amp, you get a 10-year warranty when you get that amplifier. So a company like that really stands behind its products. And I think ultimately, whether it, it, it's the resi market or commercial market, which this podcast focuses on, uh, the big thing to me beyond performance, because by and large, I think the industry, both both markets make a number of wonderful products, uh, some killer, killer products. What, what separates the good from the great products is the support that dealers give uh, or get from their their vendor partners, their manufacturer partners. So um, if a company like Bryston supports its products with a 20-year warranty and you pick up the phone and say, hey, I got a problem, and they say, okay, that's fine, pack it up and send it to our, our repair facility in Vermont, that that's all I need to hear because there's no perfect product out there. There are times where dealers will need that support from these companies, from these manufacturers. And if they're getting it and it's good, quick, uh, helpful help, that that can make make the difference between an install uh, going successfully and an install failing. The last thing that dealers in either market, resi or or commercial, want is an upset client because uh, the dealer wasn't able to make the deadline. And um, 
getting that support is a critical element to meeting these deadlines. And so, you know, you, you've been really combing the depths of the, the audio product universe for, for many years at this point, Bob. Do you have any highlights, any, any companies or specific products in general for outdoor installations that you think would be worthy of highlighting? Yeah, yeah, I've uh, I, I have a, several, um, but calling out a few of them, um, you, you know, we're based here in in the Greater Boston area, and I live north of the city. Uh, one of my favorite trips to make is a drive up ninety five, cut through the uh, the scenic uh, ninety five coastline there, and uh, head up to Terra Speakers up in uh, Maine. They're literally a stone's throw from LL Bean. Uh, Terra Speakers makes a number of fantastic outdoor audio products. Everything is built there in their main facility. Um, they use as many local uh, resources as possible. So silk screening, um, raw goods, whatever they can get from the local main economy, they grab from uh, local main companies. And um, one of the, the, the products I'll call out here is uh, they have this bundled speaker package. It's called the TR60. It, it includes a half dozen of their TR60 70-volt speakers. It includes one subwoofer uh, along with a crown amplifier, and it's designed to cover 1,800 square feet of space. So dealers could set up the, uh, the six TR60 70-volt speakers around a property and uh, place the sub, uh, connect everything to the, the crown amplifier winch, They've made it to that speaker system, so it's not them randomly picking an amplifier. Uh, what I like about Terra is because it's it's literally a handful of guys up in Maine. Um, they can also do a number of custom things for you. So if a dealer needs, you know, sixty of these TR60 speakers, they can produce an order and get that out to them. If they need a certain color, they can do that. Um, Terror is very flexible, and I, I've always found this interesting about them. It they, they test their products in the winter by literally placing them outside their doorstep. We we up here in the Northeast know how brutal the main winters can be, and um, they put the speakers outdoors. Uh, it, uh, uh, you know, literally the testament to to see how they weather the 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 main uh, the main winters. On the other side of things, I, I can remember a number of years ago, I wrote this story about Terra where um, I talked to a dealer and the dealer had installed, this was a resi dealer. He had installed some speakers for an outdoor audio install next to the LA forest, if I remember correctly. Well, there was a fire, literally the only thing that withstood the fire in the LA forest in this property that was next to uh, the forest was the Terra speaker on the spike. It still Perfect. worked after the fire. So it's it's real stuff. It sounds good. And uh, it can take everything from the brutal Maine winters to the extreme heat of a forest fire and still play ACDC without any compromise. I mean, talk about a highway to hell if it's restored yeah. to the fire. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what uh, what else would you recommend in terms of uh, companies that are just really well known for what they can offer integrators? Um, a couple of other companies that come to mind are uh, a company I've worked with over the past few years is um, Ambersonic Systems. They make a number of um, 
They're almost like line array type speakers, but they designed them for outdoor applications. You can use them indoors too for houses of worship and um, other similar environments, uh, auditoriums and whatnot. But they have this product. It's called the twelve, the Model Twelve BP Dash IG Seventy V, and um, it provides a frequency response of 34 hertz to 140 hertz and SPL capabilities of over 120 dB with peaks coming up near 130 dB. Um, they use their own custom-built Tordial-based transformer, and th they're another product line that can withstand the harshest of winters. A few years ago, I reviewed one of their products, and literally before snowstorm, a blizzard we had, I stuck the speaker in my backyard and had to wait to the spring for it to melt out. And then I played it after it had melted out, and it still worked uh, as well as um, the first time I had ever heard it. Uh, they're a robust company, and they are something worth looking at, too, in terms of outdoor speakers. Um, if you if if you want me to keep going, I can do that too. Um, another New England company is Near Speakers. Now, uh, CI readers may recall that Adam, you recently posted a uh, contributed article from Near Speakers to uh, to uh, CI's sister book, CE Pro, and you grabbed it for CI because it had a lot a lot of relevant topics or uh, uh, relevant information based on uh, how to use DSPs and um, specifically um, limiters and compressors and how to, how to use them to manipulate sound to, to short even coverage in outdoor spaces. Um, NIR makes a number of packages, including complete bundled systems. They make uh, standalone in-ground, uh, above-ground um, subwoofers, they make a variety of po uh, components and they bring a wealth of knowledge to um, the outdoor space. And if you don't believe me, just look at the article that that was posted on the CI website. There's a lot of great information and it's real, real stuff, too. It's not it's it, it's not hype. It's not marketing. It's it's real stuff. Um, uh, would you like a couple more, Adam? I'd, I'd be lo I'd love to hear just a, a couple more, just, you know, whatever you think really separates uh, one or two more products from the market. Okay. Um, I'll give you a couple more. Uh, this company uh, is fairly new to me, but I love their enthusiasm. Uh, they're a company called Coastal Source, and they do some unique things in terms of they combine outdoor lighting with... Um, Loudspeakers, they also offer standalone lighting, which is another topic, but it's related to what we're talking about. So outdoor lighting, outdoor speaker systems. Um, uh, they recently brought to market a, a technology that's kind of been used. It's it's very similar to the cardioid technology that, you know, the sound reinforcements uh, systems use, uh, where you use multiple subwoofers that basically help cancel out um noise that or, or low frequencies that are away from the targeted listening area well they're bringing something to that to the outdoor space where you're not having to use big line arrays or massive subwoofers or whatever and uh it's something worth investigating too and on top of that you know you get you get their lighting expertise too so if you want to add lighting to your portfolio if you're a commercial dealer and you want to bring lighting to outdoor spaces 
there, there are a lot of revenue opportunities in outdoor lighting too. Um, but one final outdoor speaker, uh, speaker category that I'd like to bring up too is rock speakers. Now, these rock speakers are what the name implies. They're, they're speakers designed to look like rocks and you can put them out on the landscape and uh, one of the, the longest running companies offering these type of products is the MSE audio brand, Rockoustics. Uh, they, they have a number of different sizes in terms of the, the, the physical size of the speaker. Uh, they have a number of different colors because, you know, different parts of the country have different colored landscapes. Up here in the Northeast, we have a lot of granite and gray type of rocks. While in the Southwest, they have a lot of sandstone colored rocks and redder color. So they, they have those colors to, to help these speakers integrate into these landscape environments. They also offer 70-volt option, too. So integrators can use these products in bigger systems and not combined to the limitations of traditional eight ohm loudspeaker connections. So um, that, that's a line worth looking at too, if you need a land ta uh, landscape type of speaker. I don't know about you, Bob, but I see Rockoustic speakers everywhere. Like just everywhere. Like you, you, you talk about like their, their diversity of, of color ranges. And yeah, I mean, once you notice and you know their design, you really see them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that it's one of those type of speakers and there are other, speaker types out there too where you have planter speakers um and a number of these outdoor audio companies will offer planter speakers too where you can literally drop a plant into the top of it and the bottom is uh a speaker and you can put that on on decks you can put it on patios so it's great for like restaurant spaces and whatnot so many companies offer those type of uh solutions too uh but these, these rock speakers are great because Unless you're looking for them, they're pretty unobtrusive.